Well, you know, it's a real delight for me to um, come to Cheltenham. It's, a, it's obviously a beautiful place with lots of beautiful buildings. And, uh, you know, I can tell just looking around the room, beautiful people as well. So uh, thanks for uh, having me here. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be a part of kicking off something. I actually love it when groups of people get together uh, to have opportunities to think deeply about the things in life that really matter to all of us, to anyone who's a human being. And obviously this question uh, of how much is our life worth and um, you know what, what gives us value, what makes us special, it's, it's an important one and it affects how we live, how we treat other people. Um, and so without further ado, um, I would love to get into it. I just want to add one more thing about who it is that's speaking to you. I'm also very privileged to be married uh, to my wife, Natasha, who's uh, a church leader, and she's also the chaplain for the Christians in Government. If any of you are in government, you want to connect with Christians in Government, come chat to me afterwards. And I have got three kids, uh, and they're a daughter and two sons, uh, nine, eight, and three years old. And so... Um, if any of you uh, have parents, uh, have, have kids as well, uh, we can sympathize with one another and uh, laugh with one another about how much fun it is being a parent. But let me begin with a story. A story about, okay, you're gonna sit there, cool, all right. Um, if I just kind of point in that general direction each time, that'll be awesome. Uh, a violin, yes, it is. A story about a, a violin. This story begins in California in 1967. A lady is going for her walk. She stumbles across a violin, apparently abandoned by the side of the road. So she decides to pick up the violin and she, not herself being a violinist, she gives the violin to her nephew. Now her nephew says, thanks very much, auntie, but he's not interested in learning to play the violin. So he puts it in his cupboard where it stays for a very long time, unused, unwanted. This boy grows up, becomes a man, gets married, and uh, his wife, her name was Teresa Salvato. And uh, one day Teresa Salvato discovered this violin at the back of a dusty cupboard, and she decided that she would like to learn how to play it. So she starts taking lessons, and then one day she decides, I need to take this violin to a violin store for a bit of a tune-up. Now, if somebody had asked Teresa, how much is this violin worth? What, what would she have said? She would have said she has no idea. Why did she have no idea? Because she knew nothing about the violin. She knew nothing about where it came from. But the violin repair shop, who were violin experts, quickly realized that this violin was no ordinary violin. In fact, it was such a special violin, it even had its own name. The name of this violin was the Duke of Alcantara. Wow. <laughs> Why was it called that? Because that was the name which had been given to the violin 267 years ago by the man who had made that violin, a man by the name of, can you guess? Stradivarius, that's right. Teresa Salvato had no idea that the violin that she'd been learning to play on was a Stradivarius violin worth over a million pounds. <laughs> and found abandoned, apparently, on the side of the road. This is a true story. Would you like to know how it ended up on the side of the road? If you do, uh, feel free to ask me in the question and answer time after the talk. I can tell you. 
Now, I'll leave you hanging till Q&A time. But Stradivarius violins remind us that some things in life are special. Some things in life are significant. Some things in life require that we treat them with care and with dignity. But what is it that makes something significant? What is it that makes something special? What is it that makes something valuable? And to really get to the point of our question today, what is it that makes you special? What is it that makes your life significant? In a world of 7.8 billion other human beings, what makes your life valuable? Well, we can know the identity uh, of a, we can, sorry, we can know the value of a violin based on the identity of the violin, and we can know the identity of the violin based on the origin of the violin. I wonder, could it be the same for us? Well, if so, then our value as human beings cannot be understood without reference to our true identity, and our true identity cannot be understood without reference to our ultimate origin. But as you know, when it comes to the question of human identity, who are we really as human beings, and origin, where did we come from really as human beings? there are competing explanations on offer. And that makes it difficult for us to discern the appropriate framework for our understanding of our value and our worth as human beings. For example, one of the dominant views of human identity and value in the West is the view that there is nothing more to the origin of you, of human beings, and of life in general than just purely unguided physical causes. On this view, everything we are, everything we think, everything we feel is at bottom just physical processes playing themselves out in a complex system of cause and effect. To quote the renowned psychologist and atheist B.F. Skinner, man is a machine, a complex machine of course, but in the end simply a machine. And in that respect, his behavior is completely determined in accordance with physical laws in operation. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to respond to this assertion by asking why would anyone believe what B.F. Skinner says if he himself thinks that everything that he says and does is predetermined? That's an interesting question in and of itself. But if this is what he believes, and it is, and of course it's what many, many people believe today, you might believe that, and maybe friends of yours believe that, but if that's true, what makes anything or anyone special? No surprise then that many young people are growing up wondering to themselves, am I even special? Am I even significant? Is there anything which makes a human being special or significant? Now, Jean-Paul Sartre was one of the uh, most influential atheist philosophers of the 20th century. And coming from this uh, perspective, Sartre argued that there is nothing that makes us essentially special, nothing that makes us even essentially human. What did he mean by that? Well, he said that as an atheist, he reasoned that since there is no God, who has designed us, then a human being has no blueprint, no design plan, no innate essence. Therefore, he said, we must create our own nature, our own identity. We must create our own value. 
And Simone de Beauvoir, who was his partner, um, also an existentialist philosopher, she, she said, one is not born a man or a woman, one becomes one. You lead your nature where you want it to go because it doesn't offer you a script or a plan or a path. You are free to make yourself and remake yourself ad infinitum because you aren't defined and don't have to be defined by anything except your own desires. But here's the question. If on this view a human being comes into the world with no innate identity, why do we feel the need to create one? Where does that, where does that longing for a unique personal identity actually come from? Does anyone here own or have a dog? Anyone, anyone have dogs? Okay. Have you noticed, thank you, uh, I also grew up with dogs. You might have noticed that a dog has no such existential concerns. <laughs> Provided you water, give it water and feed your dog and pat your dog, a dog is content. Dogs don't concern themselves with existential questions about who they are or whether they're valuable. Neither do cats, because cats just assume that they're valuable and that's how they live. But, <laughs> but, but okay, when animals don't think about these sort of things, why do we? Why, for example, do so many of us experience anxiety and burnout in the workplace based not so much on the physical or mental demands of the job itself, but on the emotional angst and turmoil that comes from trying to find our sense of identity or significance or self-worth in our work or our career, you know, in our salary or our position or our success? Why do we even care whether or not our life is significant or special? Well, I want to suggest that the reason that we have a fundamental need to be significant is because we are significant. We want to be special because we are special. Think about it. Even our fairy stories reveal this truth to us. The Ugly Duckling, Cinderella, and of course, my all-time favorite, Shrek. Uh, <laughs> One, two, and three, all classics, and they all speak of the human longing to be somebody special. But sadly, we don't often feel that significant or that special. So speaking personally now, I spent the majority of my school years as a teenager stifled by a constant sense of self-consciousness and an anxiety that actually, if I was really honest with myself, I really wasn't that significant. I really wasn't standing out from the crowd. I really wasn't anybody special. And I remember I worked in a supermarket after school, pushing trolleys and stacking shelves for the princely sum back then of about three pounds an hour, if you convert it from Australian dollars, and just saving a couple of hundred pounds took weeks and weeks and weeks of work for me, and yet I decided that it made sense for me to spend 200 pounds of my hard-earned cash on a pair of sunglasses <laughs> on the basis that this would greatly enhance my coolness factor. <laughs> now, these were really cool sunglasses. Oakley razor sunglasses, the sort of rainbow-tinted wraparound sunglasses that a lot of the Australian cricketers were wearing at the time. And I believed exactly as the clever advertisers wanted me to believe that if significant people like these sporting greats were the, wore these sunglasses, then if I wore these sunglasses, that would mean by a process of indisputable logic that I too would be significant. I too would become cool. I would become a somebody. 
Now, can anybody relate to what I'm talking about here? Or is it just me? <laughs> That's the experience. Thank you for being honest. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, you know. This anxiety about just wondering whether or not other people look at me and think, now there's somebody special, or whether they look at me and just keep looking right through me. Now, a wise person once said to me, don't worry about what other people are thinking about you because they're not. They're thinking about themselves. Now, I really wish someone had pointed that back out to me when I was a teenager. It would have saved a lot of uh, worry. But um, it's easy to fall into anxiety about how others rate us on the social scale of significance. There's even a name for this type of anxiety. It's called status or status anxiety. The philosopher Alain de Botton describes status anxiety like this. He says, people who hold important positions in society are commonly labeled somebodies and everyone else we label nobodies. Somebodies are highly visible and admired. Nobodies are all but invisible. One of our greatest fears as human beings is to be unseen, to be invisible. Nobody wants to be invisible. Nobody wants to be a nobody. But in a world with so many people, not everybody we reason can be a somebody. And that in essence is the problem. That nobody wants to be a nobody, but not everybody can be a somebody. Should I say that again? <laughs> nobody wants to be a nobody, but not everybody can be a somebody in a world of 7 billion people. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in competition with everybody. Everybody is competing with everybody to be a somebody, to be significant, to stand out from the nameless crowd. But wouldn't you agree that everybody competing with everybody, it's not the healthiest foundation for universal human happiness and flourishing. Yet sadly, competition is the narrative that we increasingly live by. Have you ever noticed how many movies or TV shows depict life as a competition and others in life as the competition? Think of Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games or Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones or Frank Underwood in House of Cards or more recently that series Squid Game. For many people, these shows are accurate and insightful metaphors revealing life for what it really is, just a game with winners and losers. And as these shows make graphically clear, it doesn't pay to be a loser in the game of life. Unsurprisingly, so many people take the view that unless they make it to the top, they will never be significant and they will never be happy. And getting to the top normally means becoming wealthy or famous in or, or the best in one's field of study or sport or music or, or art. And, and unless we become wealthy or famous or the best in our field, then we've failed at life. We've failed as a person. We are a failure. But I want to tell you, I just think that's the wrong narrative to live by. Because, well, firstly, failure is an event. It's not a person. You're not a failure. If you've ever been told that you're a failure or you've told yourself that you're a failure, it's not true. It's a lie because failure is just an event. It's not a person. To equate failing with being a failure is to make the mistake of conflating what you do with who you are, but they're not the same thing. Secondly, according to social science research, if we try to base our sense of self-worth and significance on external sources of achievement, such as physical appearance or success in career study, sport, music, or relationships, what's the result? Happier? No. 
more stress, more anger, more academic problems, more relationship conflicts, higher levels of drug and alcohol abuse and symptoms of eating disorders. Why? Why is that? Well, let me suggest a couple of reasons. Those who measure their significance in terms uh, of accomplishment or success, or in what they're able to do or to achieve, often find that their focus in life is always on the pursuit of the next goal, whatever it may be. Wealth, family, career, relationship. Now these goals and their attainment come to entirely define a person's sense of self, so that over time their life's motto subconsciously becomes, I achieve, therefore I am. In other words, I am what I do. Now, does that feel uncomfortably familiar to anyone? Among the many problems associated with this mindset or approach to life is this, that if I think that I am what I do, then my personal sense of significance will be judged on how well I feel I'm doing. But how well I feel I'm doing will inevitably be based on how well I feel I'm doing in comparison to others. But if that's the case, I'm now in a position where my sense of significance has actually become inversely proportional to how well others around me are doing. And if that's the case, it becomes increasingly difficult to genuinely celebrate the success of those around me, including even the people I love and care for. In other words, basing our sense of significance entirely on what we do and what we can achieve it changes the way that we see ourselves and it changes the way that we see each other. Now, I mentioned that I worked in a supermarket as a teenager. And if you've ever worked in uh, retail, you will know that a product's success has much to do with where it is placed on the store shelf. So according to research, um, shoppers um, start looking at the shelf at eye level. They work from left to right and uh, they make their purchasing decision in fewer than eight seconds. Now, if your product is not one that people are choosing in that eight second window, then retailers aren't going to bother letting your product take up valuable shelf space. And that's why eye-catching packaging and clever marketing of products and colorful packaging is it's hugely important and and interestingly the different suppliers of products who come into a store they try all sorts of ways to convince the store owner to put their uh, products on the the on the shelves that get the most buy and the shelves that get the most buy is at eye level because eye level is buy level so the good suppliers will try to buddy up to the store owner and offer all sorts of incentives to get their products on the shelves at eye level and it's really interesting when two competing suppliers are in the store at the same time rarely do they smile at each other and say isn't it cool that we sell really similar products <laughs> usually they don't even acknowledge the other person or if they do it's in a very awkward sort of way and so my question is what happens to human relationships when everybody is competing with everybody for that coveted shelf space, that place where we are seen, recognized, valued, and chosen. What happens is we tend to treat ourselves and others as objects, comparing and evaluating each other the way that we value products in the marketplace. 
and this tendency or trend towards the objectification or commodification of the human person has received a huge turbo boost in recent years through the way in which social media technology is shaping our lives. So Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, they're not just places that we socialize, but they're places that we market our lives to others and compete for attention and acceptance. In the critically acclaimed sci-fi series Black Mirror, uh, each episode explores in disturbing detail the way in which technology is shaping our society. And one of the most memorable episodes imagines, it imagines a world in the not too distant future in which we're completely dependent on social media and people can rate one another out of five stars based on well, appearance, even the most briefest interaction. Could be anything from that sideways glance you gave someone on the morning commute to work to the lack of enthusiasm that you displayed uh, for the birthday gift that your coworker gave you. Could be anything. And these ratings have real world implications. Drop below four stars and you'll start to lose some friends or plummet below three stars and you could be barred from certain businesses or gatherings or even lose your job. And as you can imagine, this episode got so many people talking. One article in Business Insider magazine said this, they said, it's actually not too far-fetched from the world that we live in now. Just imagine if you combined your Uber rating with the amount of likes that you got on Facebook and the number of replies that you received on Twitter in the last month. Now imagine that that singular rating determined everything about your life from where you worked to the home that you were eligible to live in. And as I said, you know, this episode sparked so much conversation, people wondering, hey, is this just a parody of the way things are now, or is this some sort of prophetic vision of where we're headed if we're not too careful? A new report by the Royal Society for Public Health in the UK entitled Hashtag Status of Mind. It was on how social media platforms are impacting well-being, and it's concluded that Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, all demonstrated decidedly negative effects on people's overall mental health, increasing users' anxiety, depression, problems with uh, self-identity and body image. And the author of the report said that these platforms draw people to compare themselves against uh, unrealistic, largely curated, filtered and photoshopped versions of reality. And according to Dr. Jessica Struble, who presented the lead study last year, uh, two years ago at the American Psychological Association on the effect of new dating and social apps, says, People are now living in a surreal world, creating these unattainable ideals and expectations that no one can meet. It's creating a 24-7 constant need for impression and appearance management. So it turns out that the freedom <clears throat> that Sartre and de Beauvoir and other, um, some of these other atheist philosophers talked about existentialist philosophers, this, this freedom to make yourself and remake yourself ad infinitum, because you don't have to be defined by anything except your own desires, turns out it's not a freedom. It's a burden, because it's all on you. The relentless task of having to create or manufacture your own sense of identity and self-worth and significance. It's all 
on you. And thanks to social media technology, it is now a 24-7 full-time job. Psychologist James Hollis explains the situation like this. He says, if we don't know who we are, then our tendency is to think I am what the world says I am. And if you were born after 1980, the world is largely online and that world is always keeping score. New York Times columnist David Brooks said, even though technology means we're so much more connected than ever before, he said we're actually in a crisis of disconnection. There's a lot of loneliness, a lot of solitude. There's a lot more anxiety born of competing than there is of connecting born of intimacy. And, and it's not just the millennial generation or younger generations who are struggling here. It's actually part of the human problem that we're all trying to find significance and self-worth and acceptance in what we do and what we can obtain and what we can achieve. And it's not working because it's a burden that we were never meant to bear on our own. Now, at the risk of sounding horribly soppy, I'd like to share with you a happy moment that I had as a father when I overheard my then four-year-old daughter, Grace, singing to herself in her bedroom when she thought no one was listening, but I was listening. And this is what I heard her singing. And it's, I'm gonna butcher it, but daddy loves me. He really loves me. Even if I'm really naughty, he still loves me. And Jesus will always love me. And then she went really, really high and I can't do a two sort of thing like this. And I just thought to myself, yes, thank you. She gets it. Her heart has received it. That she's loved for who she is, not for how well she behaves or how well she achieves. But unfortunately, I also know that this is not the message that she's going to get at school or Instagram or Snapchat or, or one day the workplace. But I can tell you, it's the message that we, she will get from me as her father. And according to the Bible, it's the message that her heavenly father has for every one of us. You know, even that small percentage of people who do achieve the sort of wealth, fame, popularity that makes a person stand out from the crowd, so often find at the top of that mountain that that sort of success alone is anticlimax, unsatisfying. Perhaps the biggest celebrity of the 20th century was Elvis Presley, the king. And a reporter once asked Elvis Presley the following question. Elvis, when you first started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. You're now rich and famous. Are you happy? To which Elvis replied, I am lonely as hell. And that was six weeks before he died. Marcus Persson is a legend in the world of gaming, the creator of Minecraft, probably the most popular, successful game in history. He sold it to Microsoft for two and a half billion. Months later, he wrote the following tweet, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends, partying with famous people, able to do whatever I wanted, and I've never felt more isolated. The actor Nicole Kidman said it was winning an Oscar in 2002 that made her realize how empty her life really was. It turns out that the most despairing moment in life is when you've just achieved that which you thought would deliver the ultimate in meaning or significance, and it has just let you down. 
according to the Bible. Part of the tragedy of the human story is that just like the Stradivarius violin found by the side of the road, we already possess a tremendous value and worth simply by virtue of who we are, but we don't know it. We no longer recognize our true value. And so we end up seeking our value as well as judging the value of others in external things like our career or job title, or salary, or house, or social connections, or physical beauty, or physical health, when in reality, all these things will one day pass away. But there is something of far greater worth that will never pass away. Your soul. As Jesus Christ famously said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world yet lose his soul? According to Christianity, the most precious thing about you is not anything that can be seen from the outside. The most precious thing about you, it's your soul. For your soul's the deepest part of, of your inner self, the part that makes you uniquely you. And just as a precious Stradivarius violin bears in its handiwork the signature of a master craftsman, so too we bear in our very beings the signature of the master craftsman, God himself. And however invisible you may sometimes feel you're not invisible to God for you are the Bible says the apple of God's eye neither a mistake nor an accident nor a failure but here on purpose made by God created in his image do you know that claim that we are as the Bible puts it made in God's image it's probably the most revolutionary claim in world history why because for most of human history the assumption has been that human beings are not all valuable not all human beings are valuable in fact prior to the historical impact of christianity on our planet the largest number of people were regarded as somebody else's property perhaps they were a slave perhaps they were a woman or a child which meant that they were practically owned by the man of the house or perhaps they lived in a a, a place where the uh, emperor or the ruler was regarded as God and the people simply as the ruler's chattel. Even the great philosopher Aristotle taught that women and slaves were naturally inferior beings. However, right from the start, Christianity was so countercultural, insisting that men and women and adults and children and free and slaves and citizens and foreigners and kings and subjects and nobles and laborers and wealthy and poor were all equally precious beings made in God's image and all equally those for whom Christ Jesus bled on and died on the cross. As we read in the Bible in 1 Timothy, he's the savior of all men and in 2 Corinthians, Christ died for all. Interestingly, the historian Tom Holland observes that uh, people in the West, um, even those who imagine that they've emancipated themselves from Christian belief, are in fact shot through with Christian assumptions about almost everything. He says, all of us in the West are a goldfish and the water that we swim in is Christianity. Now, what Holland's not saying is that everyone's religious beliefs are Christian, but what he is saying that everyone's morality is Christian. In the West, at least, he's saying that our residing instinct, that it's somehow morally wrong to treat ourselves or to treat others as worthless or as lacking any value or as somebody else's property, that this moral instinct, it didn't come from nowhere. It came from the Bible. 
and specifically the biblical notion that we've been made in the image of God and the influence this notion has had historically. And if this notion is true, if we are genuinely made in the image of God, not here by accident, but here on purpose because he wanted us to be here, not just purely physical, but also spiritual beings made for an eternal future in God's good universe, then that would explain why temporary and transitory things like money or fame or success, though perfectly fine things in and of themselves, do not and cannot ultimately fulfill us because they're incapable of offering that which our souls most deeply crave, which is to be fully seen and fully known and fully loved everlastingly. A love that can only be perfectly found in God himself. Now, recently my wife and I watched uh, the movie Instant Family starring Mark Wahlberg. It's based on the true story of a couple that decides to adopt three siblings and whilst the younger two children find it easier to accept their new parents, the teenage girl Lizzie struggles to accept being part of their family. She cannot let go of returning to her birth mother even though her birth mother has abandoned her time and time and time again. And at the end of the movie or towards the end, the birth mother has once more let her down. And, and, and so Lizzie lashes out at her adoptive parents. And in this one scene, she runs away from them and hides, but they chase after her and they find her behind a fence crying. And she tells them to go away and leave her alone. But they say they can't do that because they love her. And she says, no, you don't. You don't even know me. But then they show her just how much they do uh, know her by describing all the little things about her that a lot of people wouldn't notice. But they do notice because they really do see her. And it's almost as if she can't believe that they really would love her. But they really do. And, and they're like, Lizzie, we really do love you. We love you. We love you. And Lizzie says, stop saying that. Stop saying that. And you can see in this young woman the anguish that she's experiencing as she finds it so hard to accept the love of these people that she's done nothing to deserve, but which they can't help but have for her because they see in her something that she can't see in herself, that she's incredibly precious and worth fighting for. And I think it's, it's a picture of God's love for us in Jesus. The Bible tells us that when we lose connection with the love of God in our lives, that's when our souls get sick. And then we end up losing connection with what's really valuable in ourselves and in others. And that this is the root cause of why we live in a hurting world, where people tend to compete rather than cooperate, to objectify rather than dignify, to denigrate rather than to celebrate, to pull others down rather than lift others up and to envy and resent rather than love and respect. That's the bad news. But the good news of Christianity is that there is, there's a cure for this soul sickness and that it is to be found in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, we're enabled to see that we are indeed seen, recognized, valued and chosen by God the creator of the universe. In fact, the Bible says that it's why we were still in rebellion against God that Jesus died for us and that on the cross, he willingly bore in his body the crushing consequences of all that deep sickness in our souls that causes us to devalue ourselves and to devalue others 
as well as to devalue God. So that even when we were saying to God, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, God was saying back to us through Jesus Christ, I love you, I love you, I love you. And the Bible says that if you're willing to open your heart to God's love through Jesus, that he will come and live in you and to help you to see that you don't need to make a name for yourself in order to become someone special because you already are special. You already have a name and an identity that's more precious than anything this world has to offer as an utterly unique and irreplaceable child of the living God fashioned in his very image, holy and dearly loved. We see this so clearly um, in the story of the encounter of an encounter between Jesus and a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, as recorded in the Bible. Now, uh, Zacchaeus, uh, he, he was, uh, his name actually means righteous one. So he's probably from a religious family, but Zacchaeus was actually anything but righteous. He was, he was collecting money from his own Jewish people to give to the occupying Romans and taking a corrupt slice of it for himself on the side. But the occupying Romans were happy to overlook that as long as Zacchaeus kept on winning, as long as he kept on bringing in the money, as long as he kept on achieving the results. Now Zacchaeus was also a small man we read, so he was possibly easily overlooked physically, but despite all this, by cleverness and cunning and ruthless determination and hard work, Zacchaeus had found a way to become a somebody, to become significant, to stand out from the crowd. He, he would have had people working under him because he had fought and found a track in life that allowed him to become very wealthy. He'd become the chief tax collector. He'd reached the top of his profession. However, despite all these achievements, there must have been something missing in his life because he went to extraordinary lengths to catch a glimpse of Jesus, even climbing a sycamore tree to see over the crowd, as you can see in the painting. Now, as we read in the story, Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was not invisible to Jesus. Jesus knew him, he even knew his name. In a dramatic moment of encounter, he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. Now Zacchaeus at that point, he had a choice, a really simple choice, to ignore Jesus or to obey Jesus, to stay up high or to come down uh, to where Jesus was saying. Now Zacchaeus chose to humble himself, he didn't put it off, he came down from where he was. And long story short, Jesus not only came into his home, he came into his heart as well. And the result was a complete transformation in Zacchaeus's life. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. So no longer oriented towards the question, how can I be special? How can I achieve? How can I get ahead? Thanks be to Jesus. He now discovered. He now realized in the very depths of his being, that he was special, he was significant, he was seen, recognized, valued, and chosen by God. And the song of his heart became no longer, how can I get, 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 but how can I give? How can I love? Now, this is the good news of Christianity, which if we will embrace it, it can bring peace and contentment flowing into every aspect of our human existence and protect us from the overwork and the worry and the anxiety that comes from trying to find our ultimate identity and worth in our career or success or looks or social status or salary, enabling us to see these things within the greater context of life 
and of its ultimate purpose under God. For in God's eyes, this life that we live is not a competition to be won. It's an opportunity and a privilege to, to love and to serve others and to be loved and served by others. To love and to be loved. That's what it's all about. Seen through this lens, the places that we live and work and socialize need no longer be places where everybody is competing with everybody to be a somebody, but places where at peace with who we are in God's eyes, we seek to serve and to bless those around us. Just to finish off, I actually think this is part of the reason for the Queen's enduring legacy as a monarch, admired and adored by, by millions, that um, despite her, whatever foibles she would have as a human being that we all have, uh, people pretty much seem to agree that she lived to serve others. And even though she had every reason to place her ultimate identity in her job title and her crown, she instead saw herself primarily as a servant, once confiding to her chaplain that when she finally gets to meet her Lord Jesus Christ face to face, she, she should so very much love to lay her crown at his feet. What is it that ultimately gives us our worth? According to the Bible, it's not the awards, it's not the accolades, it's not the trinkets, it's not the trophies that this world has to offer. It's the incalculable value that comes from our identity as living masterpieces of the author and creator of life, bearing in our very souls his likeness. And because of this, we find our ultimate fulfillment as human beings in alignment with the purpose for which we were made, which as I said, is to love and to serve others and to be loved and served by others in loving relationship with the God who made all of us. Because in, in, in his eyes, um, this is the real music that our souls were created to play. Uh, thank you for your time. <laughs>